the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Jason Reed, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rick Lee and Lee Johnson, and special guest star Will Paris. And we're going to talk about the problem spaces of philosophy. Before we get to that, let's get our drink orders and rants or raves. So, Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, Guinness has just opened a pub in Chicago, and so I think I will have a stout. I'm not particularly partial to Guinness, but I'm in a stouty kind of mood. <laughs> and this week I am raving about the original 1970s British series, Upstairs, Downstairs. <laughs> I just recently started re-watching this. I must have watched it when I was a kid at some point. But my God, is it fantastic. It moves a little slowly, but they tackle some really amazing issues for the 1970s. And so I am raving about Upstairs, Downstairs. Nice. Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, I'm just going to have two fingers of whiskey. I don't actually care what it is. I'll just take well whiskey. And today I am ranting about the fact that we are documenting too many things that we should be narrating. Let me tell you what I mean by that. (laughs) So as you all know, and as I've said many times on this podcast, I'm a big fan of true crime documentary, and I love documentaries. But I just feel like there's so many things that have happened in the last five or seven, ten years that we really need films about. You know, I mean, COVID... GameStop. Mm. I mean, like, sorry, I went from COVID to GameStop, but we've got plenty of documentaries about these, but not really good narrative films. So in the spirit of Aristotle, I'm saying we need more narrative films about some of the big things that have been happening recently. Hmm. So we are joined today by Will Paris, assistant professor at University of Toronto. He's a co-host of one of our favorite comrade podcasts, What's Left of Philosophy. So, Will, first, welcome to the podcast. And second, what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Thank you all for having me. I'm going to stick to a classic and order an old-fashioned. Nice. What I'm raving about are what's looking like successful strike actions that are happening across the United States in different sectors. The writers, at least it was announced that there is a tentative deal on the table and sound like there are good things in it, to the creativity and coordination of the auto workers in the Detroit area. And obviously, Hollywood actors are also on strike. And for me, solidarity is always a beautiful thing to witness and watching mm. people from many different walks of life, understanding the importance of collective action. I'm here for it. I'm also here for it. And yeah, pay those Hollywood writers so they can write a narrative film about GameStop. <laughs> They're nice connection. Yeah. <laughs> we work well. <laughs> Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? I'm going to have a baby genius from Bissell Brothers, which is the brewery just down the road from me. And I am going to rave about I'm a Virgo. <laughs> I'm a Virgo is the show by Boots Riley on Amazon Prime, 
And I have to say, for a while there, I didn't think I was going to rave about it. I had trouble getting into it the first couple episodes. It didn't have that completely packed with ideas feeling that Sorry to Bother You had. It gets a little didactic, but I love didactic (laughs) in my propaganda. It gets didactic (laughs) about propaganda, about capitalism and crime and violence. And I got to throw in a sub-rave to my friends in what we call TV Club. I have a group of friends. We get together and we watch a show one night a week. So it's taken us a while to watch this because we've all been very busy. But we finally finished it. And shout out to TV Club because they listen to the podcast. So we're talking about problem spaces of public philosophy. So Lee, what do you want to talk about? Well, in the souls of black folk, W.E.B. Du Bois famously posed the question, what is it like to be a problem? highlighting the stigmatizing and dehumanizing treatment of Blacks in the post-Reconstruction, but pre-Brown v. Board of Education in the United States. And I think I would argue that the purpose of this question was twofold. On the one hand, Du Bois was urging his readers to consider the emotional and psychological toll on Black Americans living in a society where their very identity was reduced to a problem that others must grapple with. And on the other hand, by clearly articulating what is it like to be a problem as a question, Du Bois was carving out a problem space of discourse where the ugliness and urgency of anti-Black racism was brought to the fore and itself demanded to be grappled with. Now, I suspect that most of our listeners intuitively understand what a problem is. How do I find the length of a hypotenuse of a right triangle? Should I pay off my debts or invest in my retirement? What exactly is the right time to quit Twitter? (laughs) And my intuition is that we also understand what it means to prefigure a person qua problem. Whether that person was made problematic by social conditions and systemic prejudices or whether, as we say here in Memphis, they just don't know how to act right. (laughs) But a problem space is something of an entirely different order. It's a discursive place where the abstract and the practical collide, where thought experiments and real world issues face off and where philosophy really does become a living, breathing thing. So today we're going to take seriously the notion that philosophy isn't just about considering problems and proposing answers, a model long established in academic philosophy, but which may not suit the still emerging genre of public philosophy so well. Perhaps the aim of those of us interested in doing public philosophy, op-ed writers, activists, TV talking heads, even podcasters, should de-emphasize answers and arguments and instead prioritize posing questions that challenge assumptions, stir the intellect, motivate criticism and reflection, and focus us to see the world from new perspectives. So today we're very happy to be joined by Will Paris to ask not only what is a problem space, but also what is its relation to public philosophy? What role does it play in articulating existential and social urgencies How might it aid in illuminating the gray areas that often remain unnoticed in our daily lives and thereby make social problems intelligible without prescribing rigid solutions? In other words, what is it like to occupy a problem space? We 
we're all really excited to read your 2023 essay, The Problem Spaces of Philosophy, which you wrote for the American Philosophical Association blog. Do you mind just summarizing your argument there for our listeners? Yeah. Once again, thank you for having me. So the basic argument of the piece is me defending what I think makes public philosophy distinct from what we do in our ordinary lives as academic philosophers, writing for journals, presenting conference presentations, etc. In our ordinary practices, if you've ever been to a conference, you have probably seen this, can get quite combative. It can be about <laughs> this is the one way to interpret Heidegger, everyone else, they're ridiculous, they're dummies and all of that. It becomes this territorial exercise where it's almost about actually constraining the space of philosophical activity, creating smaller and smaller areas where the legitimate practice of philosophy often works. Well, if you try to translate that into public philosophy, those who are not in the academy, it can, to be generous, be mildly off-putting. And so I was wondering, what is the putative goal and techniques of public philosophy that makes it something that someone who isn't enmeshed in the academy would want to listen to, could gain value from it, etc.? And so the argument of the piece is that public philosophy is a distinctively civic activity. What it's meant to do is not to dictate to the quote-unquote unwashed masses what they ought to think, what they ought to do. Instead, it attempts to try and engage in a project of cultivation and openness with listeners, trying to show them that there are these very real problems in social life. One of the premises that I have of what it means to open up a problem space is, well, it turns out problems aren't always obvious. That something is a problem vis-a-vis the particular relationship you have to your social circumstances or a particular goal that you want to accomplish. For instance, if we want to be really quick with it, if your goal is not something like overcoming the rule of capital, capitalism will not seem like a problem. And so part of what public philosophy is meant to do is to try to make intelligible why something specific would be a problem to other people, to furnish criteria for analyzing it, but hopefully to shift the disposition of the audience. Can I just clarify one thing? Because it seems to me that in convincing others that something is a problem that they might not otherwise see... And I think this occurs specifically or maybe most strongly when structures become a problem because structures are really difficult to see in general and that they are a problem then doesn't occur to anyone. We do make arguments still. We try to clarify the ways in which this is a problem. We try to show we're approaching an accurate diagnosis of the problem. So it's not as if we leave behind all the tools of philosophy It's just that we understand both that we're doing this in public, so there are other people with whom we're practicing this, but also we're working towards something we're not assuming we're there. That's exactly right. I mean, when I think about public philosophy, maybe this is the sort of critical theory side of me, I think that we're not just trying to point to something and say it's a problem and just say, just take my word for it. We want to justify to the public why that is a problem. And that work of justification is great inside the philosophical discipline because we're often asked to justify why a particular argument is convincing or interpretation is convincing. But even in wider political life, and I get some of this from my working on the critical theories reign or force, Mm. social life 
is underwritten by all of these justifications, where these justifications are, I ought to do X because it's the right thing to do, or I ought to do Y because I'll lose my job if I do not. And so designating a problem is also an attempt to illuminate through the practice of reason why such a problem is in fact not justifiable. It is to place it before the public and say, do we have good reasons for accepting this aspect of social life as it is? And so in the essay, I describe this as the attempt to reconstruct practical reason. Uh And so public philosophy doesn't leave the importance of reason, but it certainly shifts the register and the goal of what we are doing when we're engaging the work of justifications and counter-justifications. On that note, you know, you begin your essay with a reference to Du Bois's question, what is it like to be a problem? And it seems like you clearly view Du Bois's consideration of that question as something like a model for thinking about the work of public philosophy. If you don't mind, I'm going to quote you in your essay here. You write, much like when W.E.B. Du Bois famously reflected back to the reader the question, what is it like to be a problem? Public philosophy should involve the listener in a world where there are real stakes to how we characterize and solve problems. What is paradigmatically public in the philosophical writing of Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk is his attempt at unveiling the world of his readers as a historically fragmented world where civic values are profaned, institutions rendered dysfunctional, and social consciousness made ignorant of itself. I'd personally, that's an end quote, end quote. (laughs) I'd personally really like to hear you talk a little bit more about how Du Bois's question, what is it like to be a problem, serves as a model for public philosophy for you. Yes. You know, Souls of Black Folk is one of the fantastic and classical texts of not just philosophy, but American letters. Mm. I always say this when I'm teaching the text. It's not just about telling white people this is what black people are really like. It is a text that is trying to say this is what the heart of American civic identity is at this moment. The fact that you are ignorant of the complexity of black people's lives is not only an individual failing. It is the product of a world that is structured such that you never have to justify yourself to black people and thus actually learn who and what they are in their life. One of the boys' favorite metaphors that follows him throughout his career is this metaphor of the veil. And that's why I talked about the unveiling. Right. And so the veil works in two ways. One, the veil is him trying to show that there is this barrier, the separation of understanding between black and white people. But the veil is also, it's deeply physical. It's social. And he wants to show that the physical and social constitution of American life veils itself. It hides itself. It doesn't actually bring forth in the consciousness how it really actually works. And so what you get in the chapter, you get the boys' reflections on grief with the passing of his firstborn. He has fiction in there. He looks at economic life of the Black working class, the importance of education. All of this is him trying to say, if we truly are committed to these values of freedom, of equality, of progress. Look at how we have created a society that directly contravenes and inhibits freedom and equality and progress for all of its supposed citizens. And so the book is as much a sort of introspective investigation of a type of African-American experience. But I think what Du Bois does relatively deftly is try to show that the condition of the African-American 
American experience is a problem for the wider civic identity of American society. It is not meant to be an object of pity. It's not meant to be an object of individual recrimination. It is an object of justice and freedom. And so by doing this, by showing that this thing that I subjectively experience as a problem is actually an objective problem that involves you too, Fred Moten actually has this really cool line in an interview where he says, the point is, I want you to see that the way things are fucked up for me, they're fucked up for you too. Yeah. And that's yeah. where the real thinking and practice begins. And so much of the boys' work is trying to get to that point of white consciousness seeing the world that it's embedded in. Mm. I mean, I like that point because you know, Du Bois's text, he's really trying to change the term of the problem. Right. I mean, to some extent, when he says what's it like to be a problem and he gives all these examples of people sort of addressing him through his race, like, you know, I know a guy in my town, he's a, you know, etc. There's a sense in which the voice made clear that white America isn't ignorant about race being a problem. They're ignorant on what the terms mm. of the problem are. Like, as you nice. were saying, like, the problem is not just the existence of black people. The problem is, for Du Bois, unless the lingering effects of slavery are resolved, the American democratic project will be fundamentally flawed and compromised. Yeah, Jason, that was really nice because... Clearly, what Du Bois wants to pick out, and part of this is in the essay as well, that in order for public philosophy to do its work, or successfully do its work, the problems that it picks out and the problems it attempts to generate are not wholly foreign, wholly alien to the public. In fact, what it tries to do is pick up on latent implied sensibilities and reorient the terms of the problem. So, for instance, when Du Bois is talking about how people address him through his race, one might think, well, okay, the terms of the problem of black people is how can I make them feel like I accept them? Mm. Me as a white person, don't worry, I see you're one of the good ones. Yeah. Rather than seeing, well, what the problem is, is that this introduces severe dysfunctions and contradictions in any form of coherent political life. And so what's really nice about public philosophy is it can also do this thing where you think you understand this problem, and thus in understanding the problem, you often have at least implicitly the idea of what the solution to that problem would be. I know we're in this sort of cultural moment where everyone hates wokeness, and it's, it's really hard being white. I get it. And so one might think the resolution of that is, well, why won't black people just shut up and be American? Mm. Well, something that's really nice about what Du Bois is doing is he's saying, no, 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 you're misunderstanding the character of the problem. The character of the problem isn't your discomfort. The character of the problem is that society is built such that one group of people, willingly or not, end up exploiting, abusing, dehumanizing another group of people. And if you think that that's just a problem for the dehumanized, look at what this means for any sort of project of political equality, social empowerment, etc. And so it turns out that, oh, no, what we're looking for is not, can black people just go along to get along? Mm -hmm. We're looking for a new series of habits, institutions that would at least ameliorate this problem. But the gambit is actually get at what the root cause of the problem is rather than evading it. So this is a weird way to ask this question, but do you think Du Bois's question was a little bit of a bait and switch, right? Because uh, let me back up a little bit. So you said initially 
Du Bois asks this question to raise a problem space of philosophy, discursive space where we can talk about this thing that is not being talked about. But you just said that Du Bois already has an answer to this question. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, what is the difference between creating a problem space of philosophy Mm -hmm. and kind of luring someone in to a question that they may not have already considered, but which you have a argument and an answer for already? Yeah. So we're stick with souls of black folk, but then we can widen out to what I think public philosophy is. Yeah. Yes. Du Bois has his answers to what he thinks the problems are and what he thinks the answers ought to be. But the effect of the text of Souls of Black Folk as a whole, almost irrespective of the particular answers Du Bois has, is offering a portrait of American life that generates new terms for discussing the quote-unquote Negro problem or, in more modern language, the race problem. And so this is why in the essay, I'm like, the public philosophers shouldn't feign neutrality, feign as if they haven't considered what the resolution of the problem is. But the important effect of what they are doing is not the idea that the public should just take up the individual public philosophers answer and do that. One, I know many philosophers. I'm not sure I want their ideas immediately being translated (laughs) as if this is the political program. Instead, what they can do is generate in view how we might consider this problem. And it turns out that problems are not abstract, objective things that sit out there in the world. Problems take their shape and character from the implicit answers we think we're bringing to it. But our implicit answers are not the end of the conversation. And so there's a type of humility that should go with public philosophy, I think, where, yes, if you listen to this podcast or me on what's left of philosophy, you will hear us saying things that we think ought to be done. But it's important to look at the whole constellation of what we are doing. We are not dictating any sort of grand social force and saying, do this. Instead, we are trying to give give you the terms by which you can discuss this problem, reason over it. And you can sometimes, and believe me, we're on social media, debate with us on how we've characterized the problem. Please. Well, you know, I like it, but sometimes it gets a little too ad hominem for me Mm. and all of that. But fair enough. That is also the name of the game when you're engaging in public philosophy. True fact. I've talked about this moment before in the podcast. I'm going to use this as a way to move as your essay does from Du Bois as an example to public philosophy in general as the sort of construction of and remaining within spaces of problems or problem spaces. But I remember when Donald Trump nominated Jeff Sessions to be attorney general and Elizabeth Warren and other Democratic senators brought to light once again the letter from Coretta Scott King documenting the ways in which Jeff Sessions was a racist, and this was the famous, nevertheless, she persisted moment. When Jeff Sessions came before the Senate Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham asked him straight out, Senator Sessions, are you a racist in your heart? And (laughs) I remember thinking to myself, you know, it doesn't much matter to me where you're a racist. like Your heart, your brain. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Your fingers. (laughs) Spleen. But I think this gets at what you're pointing out in Du Bois to walk away from a reading of The Souls of Black Folk with the understanding that I, myself, and each of you as individuals need to turn your hearts 
and decide mm-hmm. not to be racist is the wrong way to get at the problem. Yes. To put it another way, that's not the problem. I like that. Or it's a different problem. As you talk about in the essay, one of the issues for public philosophy is creating a space of discourse. And so I think Du Bois gives us an example, but I'm not sure just reading The Souls of Black Folk and also the essay, The Souls of White Folk, which is, I think, a really interesting diagnosis of the problem and an attempt to outline the problem, now turning to a different pole of the problem. Mm. What are the tools we use and how do we go about then constructing these discursive spaces to analyze and raise problems? I'm actually surprised. I was expecting so much of the conversation to be about the boys, but I love it. People should read all the Du Bois. It's interesting that you juxtapose Souls of Black Folk and the essay Souls of White Folk. If you haven't read Souls of White Folk, you might think, oh, so y'all are wrong, that Du Bois really is just concerned with what white people feel in their heart of hearts and whether okay. they're racist. But if you actually read it, it's actually about geopolitics yep. and mm-hmm. colonialism. Right. So what's going on there? Well, what I take to be an important part, this is kind of an implicit theme of the essay, is also the relationship of the public philosopher to their time, Mm -hmm. literally to their social time. When you create a problem space, you're also engaging in historical activity. You are trying to not only say it is a problem that the Department of Education isn't as functional as it should be, you're also trying to shape the public's awareness or understanding of their historical moment. And that awareness awareness of one's historical moment. What are the actual justifications that shape its institutions? What are its genealogical roots? What is its potential futures? That is something that is actually very hard to come by spontaneously through our practical reason. Most of Mm. us are caught up in our day-to-day, how we should organize our time, what our future should be. If you're lucky to have a job that has a pension attached to it, you're thinking, well, I'm doing this so that I can actually retire in the future. But then when you bring in issues of things like climate change or issues of colonialism, all of a sudden, past, present, and future, they take on a different character. Mm. And they take on a different character insofar as we're not only asking, how did we get here, but where are we going, given how we got here? And so part of Souls of White Folk is to point at the lie of the idea that the world has been on this uniform, progressive track of everything's getting better for everyone. And not to use too technical of a term, but he's pointing out the non-synchronicities of this world, that these problems are also differential problems. Until I brought it to you, this was a problem for these people who have been trying to struggle with these histories, with these barriers, while for you, the world seems as if it's been going on this nice arc of justice and history. And so, yes, the boys does believe in things like truth. He certainly believes in things like justice, but he wants to show that there isn't some even homogenous arc to truth and justice through the problem space, he's naming his society as fragmented, a place of fragmented social time. And so it's important that problems aren't merely nice things to think about. They also make a claim on what is the organization of time that we live in presently. Mm. For something to be urgent, it means there's something we need to address now. Right? Why do we need to address it now? And that's always going to bring to the four questions of, well, what is the future we want for ourselves? Why is it that we are here rather rather than another possible social formation. That's also what I think is really important about the problem space. It's also a reflection on one's time that can often be obscured. 
can often be pushed out of even the realm of thinking we should at least contemplate what is our moment. Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross-brand, synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance, you can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. One of the things, the discussion of the problem space and the way in which you outline it, Will, in both your essay and as you did just really clearly for us. And by the way, I appreciate the fact that you outlined it so clearly because we have a chunk of our audience that is not philosophically trained and nevertheless enjoy the podcast. On that note, let me just quickly define practical reason because you've used it a couple of times. Mm. I take it that you would be okay with the definition as something like the use of reason to talk about practical problems such as ethical problems, political problems, and problems having to do with norms and values. Absolutely. Okay, good. So I'm wondering then, especially for people who might not be academic philosophers, how would you characterize the difference between what we do when we're being academic philosophers versus what we do as public philosophers? Because in your discussion earlier, a lot of that sounded like something I might also do in an essay that I would submit for a journal publication or present at a conference. Yeah, that's a really good question. So here's the way that I would break it down. And I want to be clear, the boundaries aren't hard and fast, but I do want to insist that there are boundaries. Mm. With public philosophy, the generation of the public space begins with the philosopher looking out into their world and seeing something that they feel compelled to respond to. The problem spaces we generate as academic philosophers, one, the audience is completely different. If I'm a junior colleague, I'm writing for my peers, but I'm also writing because the the problem I'm trying to solve is whether I'm going to get tenure. It's how to pay the rent. <laughs> now, I'm going to pay the rent over the long term. But also the historical generation of a lot of these problem spaces is very different. For a lot of academic philosophers, the generation of the problem space comes from what we love to call the literature. Right? Can you find a gap in the literature? Mm-hmm. What is your intervention in the literature. Yeah. And so what we're leaving behind, and I actually don't want to belittle this work. I think knowledge production is wonderful. Learning more about the idiosyncrasies of a particular concept or a particular historical figure. I love secondary literature. I get an immense amount of joy working through that. But it's also important to say that if you try to publish, maybe like French people in the 60s could do this, but if you try to publish an article that's really just, here's my theory of things and why we should 
should do this without <laughs> citing other people or this is what I gather the French love to do. They always imply who they're citing. So you basically <laughs> just have to be alive then and you'll know who they're talking about. But there's no work cited or anything like that. <laughs> the norms around the construction of a salient problem are different. And they're different because of the audience that we are facing and what actually counts as a legitimate problem. Obviously, things have changed, but even things like philosophy of race can have difficulty in the academy because we'll run into that age-old question that when you're asked this, absolutely ruins your day as a philosopher. So how is that philosophy? Mm. And mm -hmm. it's worth unpacking how we have come to decide what counts as philosophy. And even if you look at the academy, the norms of writing styles, the archives, the techniques, the results are wildly different. But I think the academy is constrained with our peers. And there's like almost not quite antipathy, but a condescension to the idea of something academic being immediately public as well. Mm. Will, one of the things I really love the most about your essay, which is an amazing essay, is that you're so crystal clear about distinguishing between academic philosophy and public philosophy. And I would argue that public philosophy is a kind of still emerging thing and nobody really can tell you what it is. But one of the things that you distinguish is the difference between making arguments, answering questions, and teaching solutions on the one hand, which I think you categorize under the aims of academic philosophy. And on the other hand, making problems intelligible, which is what I think that you argue is the primary aim of public philosophy. First of all, is that fair? Yes. Okay, so here's a devil's advocate question then. Imagine that I am a senior white male philosopher. My name is Rick Lee. You could use my name. <laughs> pro probably four times as much as that I'm actually making. Yeah, anyway. Why would you say that public philosophers, whatever they are, are basically just flanking the work of academic philosophy? Like, couldn't someone just say, yeah, okay, it's easy to raise problems and problematize them even further, but that's not really doing the work of philosophy. Wait, mm. what does flanking mean in this context? I'm a little confused. Okay, so this is a funny thing that I had to ask my brother what flanking meant, but he explained it to me in terms of Game of Thrones, which is like, it's when an army comes on the side okay. of another army. So when two armies are like facing off head to head and one army flanks the other side by sending a second troop or whatever, like you can tell I'm a military expert in <laughs> you know, basically what I'm saying is like coming at an issue from the side instead of head on. So my question is basically, are public philosophers really just flanking the work of academic philosophy by raising questions, problematizing things, but not really doing the work of philosophy? So responding to this hypothetical devil's advocate, I would say in no way do I envision that there's a type of almost hierarchy between academic philosophy and public philosophy. I think there is something distinctive about the tools of public philosophy. And this goes back to the beginning of the conversation. We are bringing the training, the resources, and often the things that we have read in our formation as academic philosophers to the public sphere. The difference is learning the art, and it is an art. No one can just tell you yes. how to do it. The art of how to take those tools and make it so that they're appropriate for encouraging and engaging public discussion. So for instance, I don't doubt that possibly there is a way of bringing, say, Heidegger 
to public philosophy discussions. It wouldn't be my preferred method, but I <laughs> can understand that you could do it. But if you think the way to do it is in your academic articles, you're constantly not transliterating the Greek <laughs> and you're acting as if it's just obvious what phronesis is about. And then you go to the APA blog. And you just fill that text with all of these huge footnotes of all of these random people you have read in order to hunt down the meaning of this one word. Well, one might look at that and say, sure, you're still doing philosophy, but it seems like you've made a category mistake about the type of discourse you're engaging in. So the idea that simply because it's engaged with public problems, it's not philosophy. Well, I would look at what public philosophers actually write, and you'll see arguments there you'll see engagement with philosophy. And I'm not even going to do the whole thing where I pull out, well, what was Socrates doing? Seems like he thought that philosophy could also be a public engagement with doxa, common opinion. And so, yeah, that's how I would respond. I see your point about the way in which public philosophy and academic philosophy are responding to two different sets of questions and two different ways of posing questions. But I feel like there's also a moment where to re-articulate, redefine the problem, change the nature of the problem, sometimes can entail a pretty substantial rethinking. I mean, to go back to Du Bois for an example, Black Reconstruction is Du Bois's answer to the question, why is the problem of the 20th century the problem of the color line, mm -hmm. right? And it is an incredibly painstaking historical, political, cultural research that probably couldn't quite have the same kind of like public readability as the souls of black folk, right? Or you could take, and I've often thought of them in similar terms, Marx writes about alienation, a problem one could all get behind about why work is terrible, but it takes him all of capital to sort of explain why that is. And that involves history. It involves, for some reason, comparing linens to bushels of corn. <laughs> like, all this stuff has to happen. The best parts of capital. Uh, yeah. Got us through. <laughs> so these texts, Capital and Black Reconstruction, are texts very much written by someone thinking in problems in the public. But in order to even pose their own question, they have to... I mean, it's like that analogy that Foucault once drew, speaking of 60s people who can just get away writing anything, compares himself to a whale. He He's like, I pop up and I say, hey, what about sex? And then I go down and I spend like all this time deep below fighting with giant squid. And I come back up and I'm like, what about prisons? They're kind of weird, aren't they? <laughs> and like this takes a lot of that submerged work to even come to the surface to pose the problem. And so I guess I'm trying to think about a different relationship between the public and the non-public than the non-public is just sort of the burdens of academia. Because I don't think of Black Reconstruction and Capital, to use my two examples, as like the burdens of of academia, but they are the burdens of trying to think through something. I think Marx had his ideas that you could, oh, just publish it in installments. Everyone's going to want to read this. <laughs> Lenin is riveting. People are going to be turning the... He did think this is for the working class. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yes. <laughs> but he was probably wrong. I think so. I'd just like to counter that a little bit. So a couple of seasons ago, we had Eddie Glaudon basically talking about the public intellectual. And he is a public intellectual. He's on MSNBC all the time. And he took as his example, Emerson's essay, The American Scholar. Emerson there, I think, develops a slightly different picture that sounds more like where 
Will, you were going, namely that what the scholar ought to be is someone who spends time alone, reads lots of books, has gone through training in which they learn, as Will put it earlier, the secondary literature and so on. But then they come out and talk with the public about what it is that they've been thinking about, what it is they've learned. And so there's not really a antagonism between these two. The best model would be someone who takes the free time that scholars are often given and uses that to perform these analyses, go into the archives, read the secondary literature, and then bring what they've learned to the public to engage in a discussion with the public. I like both of these two points because they're pushing me to think about something that has been in the back of my mind, but it'll help me articulate what I think the problem might be that some have with public philosophy. I imagine that when some people think of public philosophy as a lesser form of philosophy, what they are imagining is that public philosophy is simply vibes. It is someone (laughs) who calls themselves a philosopher. They hadn't actually really thought about the thing very much that they're writing on, but they're really good at putting together some sentences, so they just do it. AKA Joe Rogan. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm actually very okay dunking on Joe Rogan. (laughs) But what is actually distinctive about public philosophy, and I'll say two things. One, it is not easy isolating and shaping and naming a problem in a way that lights up the political and creative and intellectual energies of the public. I think people think it's easy to problematize. You know, we love saying the word problematic and all of that, as if simply saying that thing hit me kind of wrong. Isn't that problematic? (laughs) But to get to something like, and I like the Marx example, then I'll go to Du Bois example, of saying work sucks seems like the most obvious thing in the world. And yet the particular shape that Marx gets to it required this enormous amount of time effort, intellectual expenditure to get to something that only seems obvious, but only seems obvious because people like Marx spent so much time desedimenting and denaturalizing it. This is one of the great things about problem spaces, and this is some of my work on Utopia. Actually, the mark of its success is where it seems so ordinary as if it were obvious to everyone the entire time. Black Reconstruction, yes. You know, I wouldn't say that best form of public philosophy is to write a 700-page book and then post <laughs> on a website. But all of that time he spent developing those resources made it possible for other people to revisit the question of Reconstruction on new terms. Mm. So the second thing I want to say is crafting a problem is actually not easy. And I'm going to be kind of persnickety here. People who don't do public philosophy imagine that it's easier than it is. A hundred percent, yeah. Two, this brings me back to this interest I have in time, that the time of being an academic philosopher is a time of dwelling, take a lot of time in order to get that one footnote out, that one article out. But this time doesn't keep pace with political or social problems that have a type of urgency. Mm. And so I also think the reason why the borders between the academic philosopher and public philosopher is not just because of the norms of academia, but it is the temporal rhythms, the time rhythms, scale of how much you need to devote to thinking about something in order to respond to the urgency of a problem. And there's no guarantee that those temporal rhythms will line up, but it is Mm -hmm. just a fact of the increasingly disjointed world that we live in. 
I completely agree with you, Will. And I teach at a LaSallean university and part of the LaSallean educational vision is a commitment to teaching in the vernacular. And I think that this is one of the things that is actually emblematic of public philosophy is that we are not going to just, you know, as you described before, explain Heidegger by delving deep into the differences between one translation of the Greek and another particular translation of the Greek. But one of the things that Eddie Glaude in our season five episode on the public intellectual and I disagree on, and we did this in the episode, so he knows I think this, right, is that Eddie Glaude says things like podcasts, things like op-eds, all the other things that we might count as public philosophy Mm. should not count towards tenure. That is not philosophy in the way that academic philosophy understands philosophy. I think that he could not be more wrong on this. I mean, again, Eddie knows this. Like, I'm not saying anything that he doesn't already know. But I'd be interested to hear your view on the role of public philosophy within academic philosophy. To me, that's a tricky question. I tend to think that public philosophy far from being kind of the lesser child of academic philosophy, could potentially enrich academic philosophy. What do I mean by this? Well, it's nice to think of ourselves as academic as what makes us special is we're disconnected from the public world. We connect with books. We connect with these exclusive conferences that often have fees like $200, $300. We fly all over the world. We don't get entangled in the messy day-to-day passions of the vulgar populace. Mm -hmm. But how we structure academia is in no way some neutral, obvious set of practices. They often are the outcome of political and deeply public notions of what problems are trying to solve. Whether you have people taking over universities and threatening tenure lines or internally deciding what's proper philosophy, analytic and logic while all that stuff about sex and gender and race, those are mere intruders and all of that. Well, I think it is helpful if academic philosophy can take stock of itself. As one, we are part of institutions and we should have some responsibility to the public or else what is it that we're doing? We are teachers. We do engage with students who aren't all going to become philosophers. Mm -hmm. But two, even the norms of how we describe what we are doing are not set in stone are not things that have been handed down to us since the beginning of time. I say this partially tongue-in-cheek, but time was you get a philosophy degree and because you have the right advisor, you basically just already have a job waiting for you. I know there are some famous philosophers who have published like one really good piece. This is back in maybe like the 30s or 40s. Their ticket's written. And I'm not saying we need to go back to that or anything like that, but I look at that and I'm like, okay, so what we define as academia is something that shifts. We can have good justifications for why we ought to shift it, et cetera, but to remain ignorant of it, that seems to me – well, violates the spirit of being a philosopher. But two, it allows us as philosophers to see ourselves as, yes, philosophers, but we're also workers – And, you know, there are conditions on our work. They might be justifiable, they might not, but we should at least be able to have that conversation. We've been doing a lot of experimentation in the Bar Lab 
and we've determined that philosophy is best served with a whiskey back. Unfortunately, all of that experimentation has run us up a hefty bar tab. You can help us defray the cost of this podcast and keep us independent and ad-free by signing up to be one of our patrons at patreon.com slash hotelbarsessions. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several of them, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you'll find links to support this podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App. Now, we know this sounds like begging, but really, no, it's actually just begging. So press pause for a second. Go donate to the podcast and then come back for the rest of the conversation. We'll keep pouring profound thoughts one episode at a time. So, Will, I think we'd all agree that podcasting is obviously a very timely contemporary medium. It may be aging more quickly than we podcasters are comfortable with. (laughs) You know, uh, before podcasting, blogs were all the rage. And then there were op-eds. And then there was and still is YouTube as a venue for public philosophy. But still, I would argue that podcasting is actually the best suited for the tasks that you've been laying out in your essay, The Problem Spaces of Philosophy. Well... I guess I have a couple of thoughts on that. One, what's really nice about the podcast format, like this one, What's Left of Philosophy, Overthink, is that it restores this conversational and dialogical element of doing philosophy, which commits to my idea of the problem space of generating a place where questions and answers can be posed, rather than imposing answers on the public. It allows people to listen to people who have done an enormous amount of trading, talk with one another, test their ideas out with one another, it kind of demystifies the philosopher as this staid, mm-hmm. almost conservative figure who always already knows what it is that they think. It reintroduces a type of experimental life to philosophy. Mm-hmm. The second thing I think is really great about podcasting is it allows us to discuss philosophical ideas with audiences who might not have access to the articles that we write and the conferences that we present in. It makes philosophy more inviting and allows people who will never be professional philosophers, and believe me, I'm not saying one should be a professional philosopher. Mm -hmm. Good on you if you don't. (laughs) But it allows them to feel a part Mm. of that life if only for an hour, an hour and a half. And I do not understand if you truly love philosophy the way that I love philosophy. I I get it. It's also my job, but I also do love it. You should want it to be as expansive and inviting as possible. I truly, genuinely do not understand the colleagues that I have who think that philosophy is the better, the further away it is from anybody who can engage it, who hasn't gotten their PhD from Harvard or something like Mm. that. If you can find a way of justifying it to me, I'm more than willing to have that conversation. But I think what podcasting does is it says that actually also the ideas that we have, even if the people who listen to it aren't as trained as we are, we still have to justify ourselves before them. 
they have their own reasons, and we should also be responsive and accountable to them as well. Yeah, and people who aren't as trained as we are also love philosophy. But we're all trained, and yet, even with my training, I can't take up what current analytic philosophers are talking about in the philosophy of mind, because... I don't understand the terms. The technical vocabulary is beyond me. I don't even sometimes understand what the fuck the problem is. Um, it's and, not even a problem space. It's, yeah, you, yeah, they haven't constructed the problem space, and yet somehow there seems to be a problem. I think that oftentimes I feel sometimes foreign in my own discipline. Now, I understand that if I'm a scholar of medieval philosophy, then I better know what scholars are saying about, you know, when this text of Aquinas was written and what the manuscript tradition looks like and this problem that he talks about in the Summa Theologiae, he talks about it differently in the commentary on Aristotle. What's that about? So I get that. And I think there is real value in being a scholar of medieval philosophy, obviously, because I've devoted a huge chunk of my life to it. But on the other hand, I do wish that we as academic philosophers took on a lot more of the habits of public philosophy in our academic practice, and that we spoke to one another in ways that what we're offering is available to a wider audience within philosophy. Mm -hmm. I really love that because I'm always a curious person. I am a finite human being. I won't be able to become an expert on medieval philosophy. And I feel like for some people in our discipline, they're almost like, if you don't study what I do, you're wasting your time. But we all have our different skills and all of that. I love talking to people who study something I don't because I want to learn from them. But what I would like us to get better at is rather than assuming that the person we're talking to who doesn't study that we do that, they must either already know or they're a fool is to be able to say, but here are the stakes. Here's why something hangs on this question. I can get with philosophy of mind, philosophy of language, if you can make the stakes clear to me so that I can at least ask questions in order to understand what your position is. I think a lot mm -hmm. of people are surprised when they talk to me as a philosopher because, again, we do have a reputation. We're not all like this of being combative, of it being we like to just put our stakes in the ground. And I'm just really not like this, not part of my nature to be that way. And I think some of these people are surprised when I genuinely just want to find out what it is that person thinks. And so I'm constantly asking questions. I think it sometimes comes off as I already know what I want the answer to be and I'm trying to catch you out. But if you're not able to make the stakes clear to me, then it seems like I don't want to impute any ill will, but it just means you haven't cultivated that art of being able to take a step back from the problems you're engaging in and opening that space so others can see that problem from your perspective. I absolutely love that you said that, Will. And I think that one of the greatest pathologies of academic philosophy is its commitment to determining who is a philosopher and who isn't a philosopher or what is philosophy and what isn't philosophy. Right. You know, your essay actually references Marx's imperative that we endeavor to bring about self-clarification of the wishes of our age. That's a quote from Marx, which would suggest that the primary task of philosophy is to be timely. 
But then you end your essay with a reference to Bloke's notion of opening a path to what is not yet conscious and even arguing that, and this is a quote from you, public philosophy should be untimely by constructing problems that help the public grasp the social decay and possibilities that afflict their moment. That's an end quote. So I think that one of the things that is really great about the way that you frame this, and I think especially in relation to philosophy podcasting, is that the goal is to be both timely and untimely, mm-hmm. both to speak in the vernacular and also bring in the expertise, somewhat esoteric language mm-hmm. of academic philosophy. And you said this earlier in the podcast, that's a skill and it's not a skill that is developed or even anybody tries to develop in graduate school or whatever. Yeah. I mean, again, it's implicit. And I go back to what Jason was saying. I've thought a lot about these questions of time and I'm still working out my considered views. But one thing that I am sure about with critical theory or public philosophy is that timeliness and untimeliness, they cannot simply just be abstractions. A thought is untimely in relationship to a particular time, to a particular set of issues and contexts. And so this work of being timely, responding to concrete, urgent problems, and yet being untimely, which means characterizing those problems differently than common sense understands them, than our spontaneous intuitions think about the problem. That is an art. And I think from Marx to Bloch, what they're trying to understand is how can philosophy have its moment? And it can only have this moment in relationship to a particular context that is trying to move beyond. And moving beyond it, that is the untimely. That is trying to unveil a potential future that is concretely related to a problem we're trying to solve in the present. And you listen to this podcast or What's Left of Philosophy, the vernacular is there. I've had people make fun of me for speaking in what's called African-American vernacular English and all of that. But that's just the way that I talk when I'm comfortable with my friends. But you'll also hear a shift register to concepts that you don't just speak when you're walking down the street. And we always try to elaborate those concepts, but the tension's supposed to be there between that vernacular and the expertise. That's not a failing. Exactly. That is the construction of the problem space. That is when the grist for the mill of the work can begin. Will, first of all, I want to say I'm a huge fan of what's left of philosophy podcasts. All of our listeners should definitely subscribe to it. If you don't already, it's a fantastic podcast. But we're Hotel Bar Sessions podcast, and we have a bartender, and she has made last call. So before we roll out of here, I'd like to ask you if you have any Final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners about the problem spaces of philosophy or public philosophy or podcasting and philosophy? Yeah, I guess the final thought that I have, and this might seem cliche, but all philosophical work is temporal and it is work of trying to figure out 
timely problems in an untimely fashion. Trying to reflect on things that seem old and obvious, but give some type of novelty and urgency to them, whether it's in the academic sphere, the public sphere, or even in our private lives. And so if there's anything that philosophy and public philosophy can do with these problem spaces is encouraging these reflections on our moment, on ourselves, and on the times of our lives. Well, one very timely problem is we have to get the hell out of here. Yes. <laughs> There's never enough time. <laughs> one more minute, Mr. Hangman. There's never <laughs> enough time. But before you say that, let me just say to listeners that both Will and I will be on a SPEP panel about podcasting and philosophy next week. So if you're in Toronto next week, definitely check that panel out. Absolutely. I've already ordered a ride. So thank you so much, Will. Yeah, thanks so much, Will.